ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Office Assets, where authors get published and published authors get successful. Hi, I'm Irene Watson with Reader Views, and I'm in Austin, Texas. And I'm Victor Volkman with Loving Healing Press in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to episode number 108 in our series. Tonight's topic will be Your Career as a Cartoonist, and our special guest will be Marie Davis. You can learn all about all of our guests on the Authors Access website, which is authorsaccess.com. We'd love to hear your questions and comments about tonight's show. Please send them to info at authorsaccess.com. Now, tonight we're on the line with Marie Davis, who for seven consecutive years has won first place in the Louisville Chapter SPJ Awards for her outstanding work in the fields of editorial cartoons and women and minority affairs reporting. Her commitment to women's history has led her to travel throughout the state of Kentucky, uncovering the untold stories of women everywhere. These stories prompted her to create a traveling show entitled Ten Great State Women, which kicked off at the state's capital in Frankfurt, with the governor leading the opening festivities. She is also the creator of three comic strips, Kentucky Tales, She Said, She Said, and Bezos Kisses Bessier. In 1994, her first strip, Kentucky Tales, began its 14-year run as a newspaper in education program. It used humor and history to teach gender equity and multiculturalism to middle school children. Now in its 10th year, Davis' second strip, She Said, She Said, runs in Today's Woman magazine. This cartoon topic deals with the struggles and accomplishments of women from the Kentucky and southern Indiana area. When not drawing or writing, Davis is often held hostage by her four obsessive-compulsive cats in a 19th-century Victorian home in Louisville, which she has surrounded with large shrub topiaries of a rhino, elephant, penguin, and other animals. Well, good evening, Marie. Oh, hello there. It's great to be here. Well, I'm so thrilled to have you on this show because we've never talked to a cartoonist, and to me, I always think that cartoonists must be just somebody that it's going to have this imagination that is just totally wild. <laughs> well, I, I have been told that often people will look at me and, and kind of shake their head and say this sentence I'm so familiar with. Marie, where do you come up with this stuff? <laughs> and I have to tell you, it's a swimming pool. I swim about two miles every day, and I do a large part of my riding while I'm in the pool. And I've come to find out, I think it was um, Mozart who did something very similar as well, that icy water helped his creativity too. So maybe I've got something. Well, you know, Marie, I can understand that. I don't get mine swimming, but I get mine in the shower. And it's like, you know, I just get these messages, and I can hardly get out to go and actually write them down before I forget them. Do you think that's sort of our idea of playing with us? <clears throat> okay, now you're soaking wet, and the paper's <laughs> going to melt, or you're going to short-circuit your computer, so I'll give you really great gems at this very moment. I, you um, might just... You're also an author, and uh, with a great book, Hey Diddle Diddle, which is... Um, Considered to be a naughty tale for lesbians and other grown-ups? Tell us a little bit about that before we go back into the cartoon. Sure, I'd love to tell you a little bit about it. Uh, it's an audio book put out by Moats Books, and it's 2009. It was released, 
And it tells the story of that famous poem um, about the cow that jumps over the moon and the little dog that laughs and the cat that plays the fiddle. And so in it there's this uh, philosophical spoon and a woman who is an ice cream vendor. She lives in her ice cream truck. She calls herself an ice cream evangelical and travels around the world in this ice cream truck. And there's... um, Oh, a little dog that lives off off other people's misery. And my cow, her name is Elsa. She has a crush on the moon and on Neil Armstrong. (laughs) (laughs) So it sounds like, uh, you know, your book is very much like a cartoon also. Well, absolutely. Of course, having nearly now 20 years' experience as a cartoonist and sort of working at that 60 hours a week, my brain just thinks that way, and I took that same liberty that anything can happen in a cartoon strip. You know, you can put a set of eyes and a mouth on a cantaloupe, and, you know, then that fruit can talk. And I took that same liberty, and I use it, and I am using it in my fiction. And so it's, um, they're very wild rides. My second book is coming out, hopefully, well, that's still in the works, but it's, it's a lesbian pirate adventure that actually occurs on dry land and has a tick that is sweet yet murderous. So, you know, on one hand, you're this author, on the other hand, you're a cartoonist. A lot of the people that listen to these interviews are authors. And so let's kind of talk to them. What advice do you have? If maybe they have something in their mind that maybe, you know, they would like to do cartoons or add them to their book, what words of wisdom do you have for them? Well, that's such a great question, Irene. I think if I can talk about the uh, skills that I've learned as a cartoonist and how that applies in my writing discipline, which, by the way, as you know, writing is incredibly a disciplined activity, and as well so as cartooning, particularly since you have to be creative on a daily basis. And um, so it's very, it's very demanding that way. Um, so I think the, the great thing that being a cartoonist has given me is permission. Permission to just let anything happen. And oftentimes, of course, I have loads of friends who are authors as well, and they approach their work, and they're already editing themselves as they sit down to work. And they're, they're not giving their, their creative license to their brain to just let it come out, whatever it is. I mean, fortunately, we have spell check although I stump it all the time. <laughs> and, um, and we also, we can go back and we can correct things so easily. We don't have to write things longhand anymore. So it really is letting oneself go, and it doesn't really matter what your topic is if you just let the words come out and allow yourself that permission to do it. It really does help, and oftentimes can that can sort of, fire up the engines after a creative block. Great, Marie. Yeah, that, that's very uh, helpful. Uh, I was going to ask you, if you're starting up a comic strip, how much time do you have to spend developing the characters before you draw your first image, or is it something that happens in the process of making strips? My 
my experience has been that it's very much like writing and that all cartoonists sort of approach that very question in a different way. Some people will just start doodling and find images that they like. Uh, for example, I had this one woman with great spiky green hair, and uh, she's sort of a thinner, greener-haired person than me, you know, but her name's Marie. And um, she is, but uh, so I found her really in the image that before I actually developed what her personality was about. Other people will sit down and outline histories of their characters and develop them fully on paper before they go to sit down to draw. And I think it just depends on what sort of, what, what sparks your creativity. Well, that makes sense. I'm sure it's going to differ from one person to another as well. Now, in terms of getting started, of course, I mean, the holy grail is syndication, but is it possible, do people start off by, you know, posting cartoons on their blog, or, or where would you start? Wow. Well, of course, I started way back even before the Internet. Can you believe it? <laughs> So the Internet was actually an addition to my cartooning rather than the other way around. Uh, I think that, of course, blogs are a great way for people to get their work out there, but nothing takes the place of taking your work and gathering up your chutzpah and walking into magazines, the offices of magazines, newspapers, um, Perhaps maybe your cartoons could be used in a restaurant. There are all kinds of different places that cartoons can be used in an entertaining and informative way. Nothing beats going in there and seeing the people's reaction firsthand to your work. That really is a wonderful way to begin to see what, where are your strong part, your strong points as a cartoonist. Yeah, that's great. You can always start locally, and a lot of great strips uh, emerged out of the local market and then and went national or international later. Uh, one thing I've done is I've hired a cartoonist to illustrate a book on uh, on how to resolve marital arguments, which is a pretty weighty subject. Anywhere we could add humor, it really just makes this thing so much better. So I'm I'm throwing that out there for anyone who's you know doing nonfiction and. And they're in a heavy topic zone. Uh, oh, without a doubt, that's a brilliant idea, Victor. Certainly. Cartoons are very easily digestible. They make their point very quickly. They're, they tell a story in a very succinct way. That, And, and just the, the visual appearance of them automatically disarms people. So they're not coming to a block of text with their guard up. And, and they, they can quickly get the information and know how much of that they want to, to use. Do they want to read further? It's a great tool. Good going. Yeah, and there's even a place for, uh, for business cartoons. I mean, you know, people just hate to see endless PowerPoint presentations that go on and on, and, and they're completely dry. And I, I think, uh, I mean, you can package up a number of cartoons as, as stock art that way. Or you could you could sell them to the various stock photo sites. Oh sure, I'm working on this new strip that's sort of in that angle. I, I won't go into it just yet, but that's that's really the idea: is that visually cartoons engage people, and they can get your at your 
your message across very clearly. For example, if you think about in advertising, what are the commercials that you really remember over the last 20 years? Most of them, in one way or another, are humorous because humor does really reach an audience and makes things memorable. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. I, I thought of another sort of technical issue. What about color? I mean, a lot of people work in line drawings, but a lot of readers expect color. Where do you, how do you, do you do coloring or, or how do you get color? <clears throat> well, of course, I do all my stuff on computers these days, but way back when, I did it all by hand. Can you imagine? <laughs> it doesn't even seem like a real, real thing anymore. It seems like a dream. But, um, I, of course, if it's online, color is, or sometimes the lack of color can be very powerful online. But if it's in print, that really is up to your editor as to whether or not they want to have space for a color. And so oftentimes when I send my material off, I send two versions, one in black and white and one in CMYK. I was going to uh, ask you, I, I, I'm just really, I don't know anything about drawing cartoons, and so I'm going to ask you the basics. You did say that you hand drew them at one time, but now you use a computer. So just explain the process, because I haven't got a clue where you start. I'm expecting you to sit at sort of a table, like a drafting table, with a strip of papering and doing each frame by hand. Right. Well, um, I do, I still use pencil and paper and ink on my drawing table. And so I sit down and I sketch ideas out that way and I do a finished line drawing that's just black and white and on my drawing table. I could probably make the leap and even forego that, but frankly, I just love the way the paper, the pencil or the pen feels going across the paper. It's something very calming to me. So, and then I scan it in, and then, of course, just pop open Photoshop and color it and do some tweaking and Sometimes I decide at the end, oh, gosh, this joke would be so much funnier if the first panel was switched with the second panel or something like that. So I can, I can manipulate the art that way. Or sometimes the, maybe a, an expression needs to be changed or something, and so I can erase it and redraw it. I have a drawing tablet that's attached to my computer. Wow. Okay. And so you said joke. And... It just still amazes me. So when you sit down, do you have an idea of what your that strip is going to be? I mean, you have obviously, what is it, a weekly? Uh, right. I, I, I run weekly, but I work very far in advance, at least okay. three months. Oh, wow. And oftentimes, or for example, on um, September 11th, on 9-11, um, the the day, the week that that cartoon that that cartoon strip was going to run, I actually had in my strip something about Twin Towers. Wow! And so of course I immediately called everyone and we pulled that and plopped something else in instead. Um, so I always have to monitor and know what's coming up, but uh, working in advance is very important, and and sometimes. <laughs> I'm just not funny. 
<laughs> it doesn't happen often, thankfully. Yeah, yeah. And but do you have a storyline in mind, and it just goes over the weeks and months? No, I don't run sequ. I don't do sequels. Occasionally, I'll do one or two, or maybe three. That sort of a to be continued sequence. But mostly they are um, strips that ha- that are about relationships that are developing, but it's not soap opera-esque. Uh-huh. So you are quite a character, I understand. <laughs> well, thank you. I and know so. you've had quite a few experiences. Would you like to share some of these experiences with us? Well, <clears throat> of course, of, of a thousand funny things, but something that might be gasping is about the million dollars that I ate. Uh-huh. True story. It's actually, I I, uh, I sold the story. It's coming out this year. It's a short story to Moats Books. They're doing an anthology every year. It's called Motif. And this year it's about chance. <clears throat> and when I was, back when I was getting my cartoons off the ground, I was working five jobs. I was delivering newspapers, delivering pizzas, teaching part-time in the evenings, and selling beer and cigarettes at Dairy Mart, that's what I like to call it. And then, of course, doing my um, my cartoons. I had as many bosses as my dog had kitties. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so anyway, I was in, in the midst of all this, and I had been working as a struggling artist for a number of years, and it wasn't really going really well, and I was sort of having one of those moments that I know all of your readers can understand, where you're sort of having self-doubt. Have I chosen the right path? Well, so I ended up uh, spending my last 50 cents on my way to one of my jobs on a bag of peanut M&Ms. And I don't know if you remember, but uh, M&Ms was doing this contest on Find the Mystery M&M. Do you remember? It's been many years ago now. Uh Well, all right, I found one. (laughs) <laughs> and I ate it and looked at it. It was gray, and I thought, well, this is the weirdest thing. It's uh, it's gray. wonder if it's ruined. Maybe it didn't get the color back. Maybe it's soured. Oh, well, heck, I'm hungry. I'll risk it, and I'll eat it. Well, and then Saturday came, and it was a beautiful day, very rare and early spring in Kentucky, and I cleaned out my car, which by, at that time was this old jalopy. Mind you, I was working five jobs, so there was a lot of stuff I hauled out of that car. Two weeks later, I find out that um, I hear on the on the television that there's this promo. Oh, it's so exciting! The first Cray M&M has been found, and they're giving away a million dollars on the Johnny Carson show tonight. <laughs> And I swear, it's a true story. And, of course, I dashed out to my car in my pajamas thinking and hoping that maybe out of cleaning out that car, which I had not cleaned out in a whole year, mind you, that maybe that bag was still in there somewhere. Because apparently if I had opened it up, it would have sat on the inside. You know, you're a winner. As opposed to you know, all the ones, everything I always see is, oh, sorry, try again. But uh, but no, the bag was gone. Oh. But the funny thing about that is, is that what it really taught me was that there's always a chance that there's something amazingly good right around the corner. And that I needed to believe that those things were, were possible so that when they did happen, I would recognize them. So, and I think it's that little lesson that has really helped me as an entrepreneur 
and helped me in so many different sort of facets of, facets of my life, really far more than a million dollars ever could have. You know, that's such a great, great story. I know that you've also had an experience uh, when you uh, started marketing your novel and uh, you were going to Mexico City. Right. Let's, let's hear about this marketing venture that you had also. Oh, that's so fun. There is, for any of your readers, there is a fabulous uh, international think tank that occurs yearly at the first week in July in Mexico City. It's through the Human Rights Commission, and it's it's just an amazing group of thinkers that that come and they present papers and or read their novels or read portions of their work, show some of their research. And so I went this one year, sort of thinking, well, yeah, this is really kind of um, a stretch for me. But by golly, I'm going to get up there and I'm going to. Do do this, you know, because there's nothing like doing things that scare that scare me. I mean, I just I I have to admit that I'm totally terrified, but I just do them anyway for crying out loud. What are you going to do instead, right? So I went there and I presented and I read some of my novel and it was received really well. And here I was around all of these amazing great thinkers around the world and I was really heartened by that. And then there was a journalist in the um, audience who came up to me later and asked if I was would like to work for her magazine. And I speak four languages. And I said, yes, but I, I only want to work in English unless I have a translator because I'm not fluent in four languages, just English, so to speak. And um, anyway, so she said yes. So I, I wrote a couple of articles for her. And I also explained, and during this time, I said to her, I said, you know, I'm also back in the U.S. I'm a cartoonist, and this is, this is what I do. And she said, well, send me some of your work, and I did. And we began to work together to create this strip, Besos, which is, um, which is a lesbian cartoon strip. And that's, that's really where it all got, to, got started. And it's the funniest thing, because it was so timid when I started writing it. I, it was just very, 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 I was very timid about um, drawing and, and talking about lesbian relationships, and she would egg me on. Oh no, you have to make this sexier, or you have to. She has to have a, a shorter skirt, or something. That, you know, in other words, she kept pushing me to really get these characters out and have them be very expressive. And uh, of course, that's where Bezos got its start in Mexico City. Wow, that's quite a story there. I have another technical question. I mean, there's kind of a whole grammar to comics. There's like the one panel, the three panel, the six panel. Uh, how do you find out what works for you and, and what works for your your topic of interest? I started as drawing one panel, which is just sort of the the family circle or the far side. These are kind of, I'm sure your readers are familiar with them. More often, editorial cartoons are only one panel. And what I found out was as I went around and I was marketing my work and talking with editors and trying to get some feedback and and they said, oh, really the space that they had and, and for the work that I was doing would be better as a strip. So that's, so that's what I have drawn for many, many years now is the standard cartoon strip, which is comprised of several panels, but they're just much smaller. So the story occurs, you know, in two or three or four little squares instead of one big square. Right, yeah. I know that some cartoonists like 
the author of Dilbert, they get a lot of feedback from the readers about possible ways to move the cartoon. I'm wondering if you've gotten any sort of dialogue going with the public. I um, work to engage my readers. I really love to hear their stories about their relationships, and I use their stories with my characters. So, for example, um, perhaps maybe this woman met someone, uh, another woman at a at a party, and something funny happened, or, or um, oh, I, this one um, wrote me, and she says she said, um, you know, this I met this woman, she was wonderful, it was great, we had this wonderful time together, she had this fabulous dog. Turns out the woman wasn't so great. Frankly, I would have been happy to keep the dog, but she came with the dog, so she had to let both of them go. But it's that sort of thing. So I, I often have people telling me stories, and I ask them, um, I, I ask for them as well. Wow, that's, that's really cool. You know, because I was thinking of, you know, your stories about uh, famous Kentuckians, you know, I might be able to think of five people in Michigan. I don't know how you did that. Well, that is sort of its own interesting thing. That's really very fascinating. That's exactly the same of how it was here in Kentucky. And, And that's pretty typical of most every state because we are losing so many of our important stories to history. Microfilm is um, be, be, is rotting away. Yellow, newspaper clippings are, are yellowing and crumbling to bits. And so for many, many years, I spent tons of time at my public library digging through all of that stuff and unearthing these people. It really is very much like a um, an, an investigator or a private de, private de, private eye. Yes, yeah. it's very interesting. So I'm certain that Michigan has hundreds and hundreds of people who have done incredible things throughout history. Probably thousands and thousands. Who knows? That are certainly um, noteworthy, and but their stories are just are disappearing. And unfortunately, the Internet is not the solution to this because what I'm finding is, as sort of a lay historian, is that we are still distilling our stories down to that select five or ten or twenty few per state. And it's not really logging all of these stories, which just literally take you to physically going there and looking for them. Yeah, that's, Does that, that, that makes sense. I know. I was just thinking while you're talking. You know, we have at least three astronauts from Michigan. I mean, there's there's three right off the bat, but it, you right. just don't think about it. Right. And but but it's incredible as a as a state to hear about the people who have lived in your state and and the things that they've done. It's particularly wonderful for kids because whenever children are growing up, of course. They're looking for people who have their similar, uh, come from their town or their city or their, uh, maybe come from a farm or rural area. And what are, what did those people do with their lives? What are the things that they chose to do? And there are incredible, remarkable stories that we are just losing and it is sad. Without a doubt it is. Absolutely. I have a question about the creative process itself. A lot of, or a number of creative people I know keep a very rigorous discipline, like 
maybe they'll get up at 5 a.m. and and work for three hours. I'm wondering how you buckle down and and get the creative part. Sure. Well, it is true. I mean, art or creativity is serious business. And being a cartoonist is a life of extraordinarily disciplined whimsy. (laughs) And I I don't think that's something that people understand about um, or know about cartoonists is that the, the type of discipline I work mostly 365 days a year. Matter of fact, I can't think of a day that I don't. And um, and and I write and as well, and I write as well every every single day. And most some of that comes from my, just my absolute fear of having creative a creative block. And if I keep at it, that seems to always keep that sort of creative block at an arm's length. I think, anyway. Good, yeah, yeah, right. The the fear of having writer's block can be worse than writer's block, probably. It is so true. <laughs> it is absolutely true. And it just it, it makes me work every single day. I mean, at holidays, you name it. I'm at least sketching out a couple ideas on paper. Or Great. Tweaking, going over a paragraph and tweaking a couple of words. Definitely. I can see that for sure. Now, I'm wondering, did you have a mentor, or how would you suggest someone getting started? Would they join a professional society or, or seek out someone to critique their work? Well, I think that's very important. Uh, and I've certainly had a number of important mentors in my life, and I'm very, very grateful. I think anybody who says they're self-made is full of you-know-what, because because everybody gets help somewhere or another, and it because that's what it takes. And it's and really you can't sit around waiting for these people to to stumble into your life's path. You need to get up and get your packet together and go around and talk to people. Some people will be receptive. Some people will not. Oftentimes, the people who it's terrible to say or painful to say, but oftentimes the people who are not kind can be the most um, instrumental people. In, in although it certainly hurts at the time, but it can really ste- it has steal it has stealed my resolve, um, and from time to time it has also honed my work. Of course, it's also very important to to be careful and um, if you really don't respect someone's opinion, I don't. I just don't even bother showing them my work because sometimes you're just inviting trouble. And some people just want to be just really cruel for just cruelty's sake, and it's out there. But that's not a reason not to get out and go. It's really important to go meet with business people. They don't have to be exactly cartoonists to have things to teach you. The woman, one of the people who has taught me so much about marketing is a man in my community who is an artist who also has mental retardation. And he is, um, Shell has collected him. I mean, huge corporations have collected his paintings. And really, he is talented, but he's certainly not the most talented person in my community, but he's fearless. He will go and talk to, with anybody and 
everybody about his work. And that's really, really what it takes. So I, you know, to those people listening, I say, hey, get out there and go uh, follow Eleanor Roosevelt. What does she say? Do something that scares you every day? Yes. And that's, you know, both are such good words that you just left us with here. And just get out there and as Eleanor Roosevelt said, yes, I, I believe it's do one thing every day that scares you. And that's the biggest fear. But I encourage our listeners to do the same this has been great, Marie. Just totally enjoyed it, and I've learned so much, things I didn't know about cartoonists. And uh, tell us your website so that uh, our listeners can visit you there. Sure. I can be found at um, kytales.com, kentuckytales.com, and wayward, wayward, W-A-Y-W-A-R-D, uh, waywardpencils.com. Okay, so that's uh, KY for Kentucky, Tales.com, and WaywardPencils.com. Yes. Great. Well, I'm sure that you'll be having people looking at your work and just finding out a little bit more about you. Thank you again for being with us, Marie, and giving us such an insight in what a cartoonist life is like. (laughs) Well, thank you, Irene, so very much. I really appreciate it. It was uh, great to talk with you and Victor, very much so. Yes, thank you. And it's been another podcast edition of Authors Access, where authors get published and published authors get successful. We'll be back next time when our topic will be do-it-yourself audiobooks, and our special guest will be Janet Reel. You can learn more about all of our guests on the Authors Access website, which is authorsaccess.com. We'd love to hear from you about tonight's show. Please send us your questions and comments to Info at AuthorsAccess.com. Authors Access is a joint production of Reader Views Incorporated and Loving Healing Press. And this is Irene Watson for Reader Views in Austin, Texas, saying goodnight. For Loving Healing Press, this is Victor Volkman in Ann Arbor, Michigan, wishing you all a good evening.